You know, we're built to thirst for God. We've established that through this series, but we've set it a different way. So to test us, what's the primary purpose for every second of our lives? Enjoy God. Good. I would have liked a little bit more of a holistic response from the crowd for more of you. So let's try that again, just for my own self-esteem. What's the primary purpose for every second of our lives? Enjoy God. God. Very good. The reason for our existing is, or this reason for our existence is highlighted in Scripture often. In passages like Psalm 63, which has just been kind of our anchor passage, it says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. So we're to thirst, we are to long for him. This is not a religious experience that we're talking about. And then in in, uh, the same chapter, verse 5, it says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. It's like you would after a great meal. God is to be satisfying. He's not to be an empty obligation. It's to be mouth-watering to spend time with him and be with him. In this same chapter, verse 8, it says we are to cling to him. It's a picture of a lover clinging to their beloved. In Psalm 33, verse 20, it says we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. We enjoy him. We enjoy him because we love him also because we know he's our protector. And then in Psalm 62, verse 1, truly my soul finds rest in God. Our souls, which we have said are the quarterback of what makes us us, what makes Chris Chris and you you, controls our emotions, it controls our will, it controls our behaviors. Our soul is a big deal. And oftentimes we will nurture our physical bodies through health care and exercise and food, and we will nurture our, uh, our intellects through study and learning, but we forget our souls. Our soul was created to be needy. Every soul is needy. It desperately desires to be whole, and it is addicted to pleasure in order to heal from its brokenness that's a result from the fall, result of sin, to the point of addiction. All of us are pleasure addicts. I might be addicted to many things. I might be focused on countless idols trying to fill my soul My appetites might be inflamed with desire for everything under the sun, but my soul will not fully rest until it enjoys the Lord. Because God created our souls to be needy so they would find satisfaction in him. We've said that he has an infinite capacity to give, and we have an infinite capacity to receive pleasure. It's a perfect marriage. Have you ever noticed that in the Genesis story of creation, it says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day? Now, we know that God is spirit. So what does it sound like when God walks? That's just an ADD question. It has absolutely nothing to do with the talk. I was just wondering what, if you guys had a thought on that. But anyway, the point is that when you're walking with someone, you do it with someone you care about deeply. Friends, a child with a parent, two people who are in love go on a walk. Some of my happiest times with my wife are simply us being on vacation, walking on a beach, or walking in the woods. God's desire is to be with us, and he wants us to enjoy being with him. Our souls were made to walk with God and enjoy that to the fullest. 
We spoke last week of obstacles that we face in enjoying God. It's sin that ruined Adam and Eve's walk with the Lord in the cool of the day, but Jesus would not be denied. He relentlessly pursues us to enjoy walking with him. So this week and next week, we'll get a little more practical and we'll discuss how to grow in our enjoyment of the Lord. You know, Nicholas Herman, who was an uneducated household, household servant from a poor family, was rescued by Christ and brought into a love relationship with him by looking at a tree. Isn't that crazy? It was winter and the tree was barren, but it occurred to Nicholas that the tree would grow leaves again in the spring. And Nicholas thought, if God can do that with the tree, he can do it with me. He can make me new. So this young man entered into a monastic community and spent his life as a cook and dishwasher while privately devoting his life to simply being with God. Today we know him as Brother Lawrence. When he died, friends gathered together some of his personal letters and created a book. This book is called The Practice of the Presence of God, and if you have not read it, it is a worthy read. Very hard to apply, but incredibly simple uh, uh, concept and a very easy read. Some of you have probably read it. It was written in the 17th, 17th century and is now thought to be the most widely read book in the history of the world except for the Bible. This from an uneducated dishwasher. When the soul is with God, remember this, especially you who are looking towards your future. Are you going to get married? Are you going to have kids? Are you going to get a, a good job that you like? And are you going to have good friends? All the rest. If your soul is with God, if you have intimacy with the Lord Jesus, it doesn't matter if you work at a church, the White House, Chipotle, or a garbage collector. You will live free, you will live full, and you will live blessed. The soul thrives, listen to this, not through great accomplishments, but by living the monotony of life with God. We just had about 40 or so go on missions trips this summer, which is awesome. We encourage that. We applaud it. We celebrate the heck out of it. We praise God for it, and we're going to hear from them next week. But that is not where life is lived. Life is lived in the monotony. Enjoying God every day is far more important than trying to accomplish something great for him in an attempt to earn the right to enjoy him, or worse yet, to feel deserving of him enjoying you. Or maybe to accomplish some kind of alpha faith that will make you feel like life is more exciting and more fulfilling. You know, I've talked to countless missionaries and pastors and various other workers. Their lives become monotonous too. Most of life will be monotonous. So that means the enemy and Jesus fight for how we treat the monotony. They are battling for our soul in the monotony of life. In the highs, typically, we lean on what we think will be the most reliable, and in the lows, we lean on that which we think will be the most reliable. But it's in the monotony of life where our souls are tested. When we enjoy our great God, great things will come out of our lives because the object of our desire is his greatness, not our own. So even the person working in a fast food restaurant can have a far greater impact than me behind the pulpit if the object of their affection is Jesus Christ. Brother Lawrence's book can be summarized quite easily. 
Begin each day by challenging yourself. How many moments can I be filled with an awareness of God's presence and surrender to him? At school, in the car, while online, while at work, while on the phone, while watching the game, ask yourself, am I aware of God right now? Simply put, am I aware of him, that he's in control, that he loves me, that he's with me? That's how our enjoyment of the Lord grows. That is the aim of our life. I'm not talking here about more religious activities or devotions. Devotions have their place. I'm not talking about trying to be good. It's a life of finding moment-by-moment contentment in the glory of Christ because you know his goal is for us to be so wrapped up in his glory that we reflect his glory to the world. He wants to create lives that are wrapped up in his beauty, his wonder, his magnificence, and his power. You know, there are 84,600 seconds in a day. Did I get that right for you math majors? Hopefully. If I didn't, don't correct me. It doesn't matter. Uh, Jesus doesn't want us to spend those seconds trying to not sin. In all our efforts to keep from sinning, what are we focusing on? Sin, right? God wants us to focus on him, to be with him, to abide in him. He's the focus. The psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me. Likewise, Paul says, take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Both both of these verses speak to the need to be consumed with the Lord, but notice that they don't automatically happen. Isn't just automatic. Set and take active are active verbs implying that we have a role in what our soul will rest in and seek enjoyment from. And that's how I want to spend the rest of our talk tonight, looking at the practicals of how we grow in our enjoyment of the Lord. And they're really very simple, but can be very hard to apply. We grow grow in our enjoyment of the Lord through rest. We grow in our enjoyment of the Lord through rest. How many of you wish that life were easier? Don't give me like the spiritual answer. How many of you, all of us, right? If we're to be honest, none of us like, No, I want life to be hard so that I can fall more in love with Jesus. We say that on the good days, okay? But do you know that the Bible only uses the word easy once? It only uses the word easy once. God never gave anyone an easy job. Abraham, Elijah, Ruth, Esther, and all the rest had impossible tasks given to them by God. Is my mom here? My mom is here, I know, but I just haven't seen her in the last two minutes. Mom, are you in here? Marcy old? You raise your hand? She's probably working. Oh, she's in there. Okay. All right. She's here. She's on the premises, but I just want her to hear this. God doesn't recruit people like Marcy old recruits people. All polite and nice like. Joe Huber has jokingly said, your mom is so sweet. You know, she asks you to do stuff around the church and you can't say no You know, she could say, hey, honey, could you give me your right arm real quick? Just go ahead. Here's a hacksaw. Could you just cut that off for me? Sure, Marcy, why not? He always jokes about that. But that's that's not how God recruits. He is intrusive, demanding, and oftentimes exhausting. He asks us to do the impossible. We should expect that the world is wicked and godless, and our assignments from the Lord will be anything but easy. But Jesus does use the word easy once. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is using this word easy in relation to our souls, not our circumstances. If you attempt to have easy circumstances, that is, if you try to make life about financial ease and material comfort and free from the complexity of relationships with other people, life will be hard all around. It will be difficult. So what I'm saying is that if your bank account, your house, your job security, your car, your success, your marital status, your accomplishments, if that becomes your life aim, the opposite of enjoyment will happen. You will become fake. You will become less human. Your soul will go to bed hungry every night knowing you are meant for more. The best you can hope is for a numbing with all of those things, not real satisfaction. Our inner man or woman, that is our soul, was not made for an easy life, but an easy yoke. Here's Jesus' easy yoke. You can find it, you, that Bible in your lap, you open up to any gospel, you can find what he describes as an easy yoke. You'll find it in how Jesus prayed. What's interesting is it wasn't easy prayer. When Jesus was in the garden, he prayed all night. In Acts 12, the disciples prayed all night long for Peter to be released from prison. This is strenuous prayer. It's not easy. That's not what we're talking about. It is a yoke. It's not easy. It can be difficult circumstantially. But here's what happens to our souls. The one who gives an easy yoke shows himself, and we look back on those times of hard prayer like two war vets reflecting on their friendships, which have been stitched together with blood and sweat. Good friends that make us feel like we've died and gone to heaven have helped us get through hell. And that is the easy yoke. We look back and say, Lord, had I have gone to the world, I would have been miserable. That which I thought would have brought life, I know would have just brought death. And even though I followed you and it felt like I was dying, I found life in you. That's the easy yoke. It's not easy circumstantially, but it's an easy yoke on the soul. Jesus also shows us how to rest, how to put on this easy yoke through the value he placed on friends. Jesus had a great value on redemptive friendships. He hung out with his 12 disciples all the time. Think about all the cool stuff he could have done. You know, he could have preached to the masses just all by himself. All these 12 disciples did was slow him down from our perspective. If we could erase all we know of the Bible and read it afresh, we would probably think, man, why is he wasting his time on these 12 goons? They all betray him. They can't keep it together. They're arguing about who's the greatest. They're just a bunch of babies. They're Chris Olds. You know, I mean, that, that's who they were, just normal people. But he invested in these people. And I think we underestimate the role that redemptive friendship plays in rest. We see that relationships do change the world just by looking around this room. Many of us have gone through incredibly hard times together, and we've joined God in very hard work. Uh, namely, planting this church. It hasn't been easy circumstantially, but it's been an easy yoke, hasn't it? Think of the hundreds, maybe thousands of people that have been impacted through the relationship that uh, Jonathan Kimball and I have together, the other pastor here at Awaken. The years that we've been together, the trials that we've gone through, the hard things in Jesus' name that we've been called to together. 
We're to carry each other's burdens, and in this way we fulfill the law of Christ. That's part of the easy yoke. Jesus uses his body so that we can find life, so that we can find help in our time of need, so that we can find strength to carry out the ministry that he's given us. You know, the relationship that I have with Kimball is not primarily a professional relationship that seeks to get a job done. It's a divine gift with power from the one who gives an easy yoke. The soul finds rest in relationships in prayer. And I'll say too, redemptive relationships in prayer go together like peanut butter and jelly, like summer and baseball. You know, they, they, they are a perfect pair. When two people who love Jesus are committed to one another and they give themselves to prayer, I think there's a party in heaven because that's what Jesus did with his disciples. Jesus also, in his rest, regularly participated <clears throat> in worship at synagogue. And let me say, the synagogue was highly corrupt at this time, but he still participated in worship, not because who the people were, as messed up and confused theologically and behaviorally hypocritical, but because he was worshiping his father, obeying his father by worshiping in synagogue. He fed himself with scripture. He enjoyed God's creation. He was often around mountains and gardens and lakes. He took long walks. He welcomed little children by hugging and blessing them. And he enjoyed parting with non-religious types. You were tracking with me, most of you, until I said that last part. Oh, yeah, children and this and that. And, and he partied with non-religious types. That was part of his rest. Well, he says, or, or th this is what the rumors were circulating about Jesus. Many of you think he was just this kind of dry, crusty, religious figure. No, sir. No, sir. In Luke 7, 34, this was the rumor that was going around. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of immoral people. He was hanging out with broken people that the religious types didn't want to touch. We're definitely called to serve. We're called to reach out. We're called to give generously and all the rest, but we serve Christ out of rest. More specific, specifically, by sustaining practices that help us grow and rest, which help us enjoy him more. And when we enjoy him more, we share with other broken people more. Because we share that which we enjoy. Some of us can't stop talking about the Buckeyes. Some of us can't stop talking about baseball. Some of us can't stop talking about that show we saw or that band that we love to listen to. Whatever it is, we share that which we enjoy. And because the son got away with the Father. He shared that which he enjoyed. And he enjoyed the disciples. He spent time with them. And as they enjoyed him more, the power of their ministry grew. So we retreat to him in order to advance in the mission he's given us. He who has loved much, loves much. In the garden, Adam and Eve had the perfect model for rest. God finished his work of creation, and on the seventh day, he rested from his work. And then he commands us in one of the Ten Commandments to take a Sabbath day to rest. We're to spend one-seventh of our time resting. That's a long time. You know, God rested on his throne after creation was completed. And a throne is where the king rested after the battle was over or a palace was inaugurated. They were reigning on their throne. It didn't mean that they were just taking a day off, turn on some Netflix, you know, they chilled on their big reclining throne. That wasn't the symbol on the throne. He sat in other places when it was time to re relax. When the king sat on his throne, it meant that there was no battle or crisis in his kingdom. 
Likewise, God rested because everything he intended in his creation was as it should be so he could reign with ease and delight. We take Sabbath rest to remember that he reigns and that he is delighted. So we're delighted in him. We can't live a fruitful life without Sabbath rest. So this could mean getting out in the woods, going fishing, listening to glorious uh, music, being with life-giving friends. And we do so knowing that he is in the midst of that, that we're worshiping him through that. That's not just so we can get back to the important stuff. That is the important stuff, to acknowledge that he's God and I'm not. We need solitude with no agenda other than to be with Jesus. Another important part of our walk with Jesus is purpose, and it actually goes along with rest. So grow in our enjoyment of the Lord through purpose. Again, let's look at the, at the son, Jesus, who enjoyed the father immensely. Let's look at the author of joy to find out how we can enjoy him more. You know, Jesus was crystal clear about his purpose. In fact, the merit of his calling and his purpose revolved around uh, some statements he made called the I am statements. For example, in John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Elsewhere, he says, I am the way. Elsewhere, I am the vine. And again, I am the good shepherd. He knew the purpose for which he came to the world. But you know what's cool? What, you know what, happened, what, what comes after the I am statements? Jesus gives his disciples the you are statements. Because we, when we understand who he is, we understand who we are. Our culture is obsessed with self-actualization. That is, self-actualization being, I need to find out who I am. Do you know who you are? It's found in God's word. Jesus has already said who you are. You want to find out who you are? Don't, don't waste your time on a bunch of self-help stuff. Go to the Lord. Go to the Bible. It says exactly who you are and why you exist. The you are statements include... For the disciples and us, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are a city on a hill. You are here to reflect my glory. Purpose keeps us from hurry, and hurry is the enemy of our souls. Because you know the difference between being busy? Jesus was busy. The difference between being busy and hurrying? Hurrying is obsessed with self-importance, improving myself. I need to matter. Busy at least in the sense we're using it here, it can be I'm busy doing the things that matter to God. I'm not just sitting around all the time, but I'm in no hurry to prove myself. Jesus was busy, but he never hurried. In fact, he was able to quickly detect hurry sickness in others, and he dealt with it like that. In one instance, Jesus was serving with his disciples. Tons of people were around him coming with need, and Jesus' hurry alarm went off. And here's what he does in Matthew 6.31. It says, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to him, them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So instead of hurrying on to the next assignment, Jesus got everybody into a boat and they took a little vacation to a solitary place. And this goes along with rest. We grow in our enjoyment of the Lord through having a rock-solid purpose that seeks God over the need to feel important. The need to feel important is busyness, and it will kill you physically, emotionally, relationally, and mentally. Rest, again, not watching Netflix, but the biblical rest that we've already discussed and defined, refines our purpose, which is to what? Enjoy the Lord. If in a year, by golly, 
if I ask you what's the primary purpose of life and you don't say enjoy the Lord, I quit. No, I'm just kidding. I don't quit. But I have not. I want you guys to get that. That is our primary purpose. What's my goal today? Enjoy the Lord. I'm feeling a little stirred up like I don't matter. No, I'm a light on a hill. My purpose is to enjoy the Lord. That's it. Simple. He knows that at our heart, we're kind of dumb and we forget stuff. We forget what really matters in life. So he made it crystal clear and simple. You are to enjoy me. And you are to reflect that enjoyment in me to the world. Period. That's it. That's the purpose of life. It's the purpose of your marriage. It's the purpose of what you're to impart in your children. That's the purpose of the friendships that you have. That's the reason why you are with the roommates you're with, why you're at the school that you're at. You're there because they're people that need to see. They need to taste and see that the Lord is good. We acknowledge through rest that he is the bread we need to reach and love people. He is the light that saves, not our own charisma or energy. And when we rest, our souls remember that. But what about the mission to save the world? What about all these sick people? I mean, most of us wouldn't do that. There's all these people, and Jesus has the capacity to reach them, and he withdraws. He withdrew while there was still need. Purpose requires enjoyment of the Lord because without it, we have nothing to offer. Enjoying the Lord is the it. That's it. That is the it of life. If we don't enjoy the Lord, then we have nothing to offer. We're serving out of obligation, and God can use that. God used the Corinthians. When we read First and Second Corinthians, it says that they had all the gifts, but they lacked love. They didn't enjoy the Lord. You can be incredibly gifted. You could reach more people than anybody else in central Ohio. Doesn't mean you have the it. You could reach nobody in central Ohio, and it, mean you, it could mean you still have it, enjoying the Lord. So if you enjoy the Lord, you'll be trying to reach as many people as you can. Along the same lines of purpose, and again, these all go together. I could have, I'm basically, like I always do, just saying the same thing in different ways. Okay. Along the same lines of purpose, we also need freedom. We grow in our enjoyment of the Lord through freedom. We all want to be free, right? That's why we go to dumb stuff that we know can't bring freedom, because it feels like in the moment it'll be a shortcut. I get involved in this immoral relationship. Man, I, I know that it's not going to satisfy, but it'll make tonight satisfying. I look at this pornography. In this moment, I'll be able to forget about my problems. In Psalm 19.7, it gives us the secret. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Can you imagine a deep down spring of living water in our soul? And then in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, along the same lines, it says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. We get that every time we watch a filthy program, every time we listen to nasty music, every time we give ourselves to selfish ambition and greed and lust. That's when we stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. That's not where joy is found. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. So God says that his true followers delight in doing everything God wants them to and day and night are always meditating on his laws, thinking of ways that they can get even closer to him. They're obsessed with it. Do we really believe this is true, constantly dwelling on the law of the Lord? Do we truly believe that this will bring joy? Don't we think that laws take good things away? When we were little, it was our parents who kept us from doing all the fun stuff. And you get a ticket, are you happy about it? 
It's good to want things, but when we want something too much, when it becomes an idol, it threatens to take the place of God. It leads to bad decisions and unstable emotions and broken relationships. And to actually have everything we want leads to captivity, not freedom. The more you have, the more we have, most of you are college, college educated or you have some type of career path where you're going to make a decent amount of money. The more we have, the, must, the more we need to regularly fast from those things which we could get but we choose not to. Just to acknowledge to God and remind our, easily, uh, our souls that easily forget that he is Lord and true satisfaction is found in him alone. To say no to self matters more and more the more success you get in life. That's why people enter into things like midlife crisis, even when they're Christians. That's why people become miserable oftentimes as they go through life. It's because their stuff has taken the place of God. So our dreams with our wealth and our uh, abilities and our intellect and our vocations must be, Lord, how can I use this to glorify you? How can I use this to glorify you? How can I use this to glorify you today? How can I use this to glorify you tomorrow morning? How can I glorify you in this meeting? That must become our obsession. Because that job came from his hand. That relationship came from his heart. And that ability simply came because he graced you with it. And your enjoyment of it will only be true joy if it's centered around him. And that includes pastoring, maybe especially pastoring. I'm not saying pestering, I'm saying pastoring. God's laws seem restrictive to our natural selves because we want no restraints, but the reality is that restraints keep guardrails up that keep us from crashing to our death, spiritually speaking. Samson couldn't get enough of Delilah. The rich young ruler wanted his wealth more than he wanted God. Saul wanted political power more than he wanted to honor God. And Cain wanted revenge more than all else. Their hunger for so-called freedom threw them into a tailspin that imprisoned their souls. The more they had, the thicker the chains got. Because what they had was not given to God. It's not wrong to have. It's wrong for your haves to make you turn your back on God. Now, some will say, Chris, if I don't feel like God following God's law, shouldn't I do my own thing? Shouldn't I be true to myself? Again, self-actualization. I once spoke to a 16-year-old young guy who claimed to be a Christian who said the same thing. He was, I asked him, hey, man, why are you, you say that you love Jesus and you're, you're sleeping around and you're doing all these things and you're just doing it all the time? You know, you're, 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 it, it doesn't even look like you're attempting to follow the Lord. What's going on here? And he said, well, Chris... I need to be true to myself. And I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Let me explain why. Imagine you're on the highway, and a state trooper pulls you over and says, ma'am, do you know how fast you were going? And you say, yeah, I was going 90 miles an hour. Okay, well, you know this is a 65-mile-an-hour zone. And she says, well, yeah, I mean, I know what the sign said. And can I, can I ask why you were going so fast, ma'am? Well, you know what, officer? The thing is, my own sense of my inner self is telling me that I, I really need to go fast. So my speed limit is 90 miles an hour. And I know that, that the sign says 65, but that's your speed limit. My speed limit is 90, so don't enforce your traffic rules on me. 
Or what about a college student who owes $500 in rent to his landlord? The landlord sends a couple notices. They're ignored. Finally knocks on the door. College student opens up and says, hey, I want my money. You owe me 500 bucks to live here. I'm going to kick you out. And uh, the college student says, you know, this is a large sum of money, and it wouldn't reflect my deepest values and morals to spend it like this. I just have other vision for my, my finances. Don't impose your rules and morality on my money. Or just one more example. You're engaged to be married, and at the engagement dinner, a man, the man brings you in for a hug and whispers in your ear, being faithful to you is just too restricting. My inner man is telling me to, to pursue other women if they're more attractive than you, but I still want to marry you. We would call these people mentally insane, wouldn't we? That it's pure insanity. We long to be free, but some would say Christianity stands in the way of freedom. Skeptics would say that faith in Christ is restrictive. That is, it's all about obeying a person or a set of rules and giving up your own wishes and desires. They might even say that Christians are not free, but rather submissive, dependent, and enslaved by religion. These same skeptics would believe that Christianity is too restrictive. Uh, they actually have some warrant in this perspective. The reason in that we, is that we in the church have earned this reputation in some ways. Many Christians don't delight in the law of the Lord, but rather in keeping it better than other people. We sometimes want to feel better than the world, and our moral code does just that. It makes us feel better than the other person. You know how you can spot these kind of Christians, and I've been guilty of this. They go on and on about how evil this or that organization is, or this or that church, or this or that person, or neighborhood, or whatever. But they don't lift a finger to share the love of Christ and the message of the gospel with those people. Moral evaluation without love is nothing but pharisaical legalism, and it is the worst of sins. We are to spend our energy on the solution. We all know the diagnosis, right? We're sinners. Newsflash. Of course the school's messed up. You know what they need? Jesus. Go pray for them. Go share the gospel with them. You know what your work needs? Not for you to just sit around or me to sit around and gossip about how the person sitting next to us has a foul mouth. Of course they have a foul mouth. They're sinners. They need Jesus. Obedience to the heart of the law is what God wants. When Paul wrote the church at Rome, he addresses Jewish Christians who had, many of them had fallen into this unhealthy type of Christianity who threw judgment at the world instead of the love of Christ. And he speaks to them in Romans 2.29. He says, No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. True obedience brings freedom. To love the world, not to fall into the world, but to love the world. To love it. Not to diagnose all its problems, but to love it. Let me explain what I mean by explaining two contradictory types of freedom. The world's definition of freedom is freedom from external constraints. It's freedom from somebody telling me what to do. It's freedom from. But there's another kind of freedom that is freedom, to, uh, freedom in Christ, and it's called freedom to. This kind of freedom is to live the kind of life that we are meant to live all along. Freedom to live with Jesus. 
In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We naturally don't want to be told what to do. We hate it. I don't like it when my wife tells me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. I'll take out the trash when I want to. You know, and it's, I get, you know, all weird with her sometimes when she tells me what to do. Uh, and I know there are some entities that would tell us that pornography or whatever is good and right. But for the most part, psychologists, pastors, and teachers would tell us that it's addictive and damaging. We, of course, know that God tells us that what, what, what he means for our sexual morality, that our sexuality should be to reflect his love and intimacy and purity to the world. But we want, from, we want freedom from external restraints, so many people look at porn. Laws prohibit us from setting up a screen in a public park and blasting a pornographic video, though. We can't do that. Our jobs won't allow us to watch it at work, or most won't, but if you want to look at it every night in the privacy of your own home, you are free from the constraint of legally having to exhibit self-control. But if you choose to look at it, you will soon discover that your mental, physical, and relational health are impacted. It may even threaten your job and will cause you to see people as objects instead of dignified creatures made in God's image. Soon you will discover that you are not free to enjoy a healthy sex life. You're free to look at all the porn you want, but you're no longer free not to look at porn. And that is the world system. That is the enemy's plan. Look, I can give you freedom from constraint. And then all of a sudden, you have freedom to do whatever you want, except ignore that addiction. Our circumstances don't determine our freedom no matter how bad they are. When we look at our circumstances to try to secure freedom, that's when we go to our idols like pornography or whatever else. When we're lonely or life isn't going our way or we want to find temporary rest. Life in Jesus happens. We have freedom to live the life that we are intended to live all along. When Nelson Mandela was imprisoned by captors, he didn't have very much freedom from but there was a freedom inside of him that was much greater than his guards possessed. The freedom we need is freedom to enjoy the great pleasure giver. And he allows us the freedom to become the person that he intended. He wants us to live free. Our souls need it, and we need to live free to enjoy Christ. So how do we get this freedom that our soul craves, this freedom that allows us to enjoy the Lord? And here's the rub. Here's where it gets a little sticky. We have to surrender. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? If we say it's the greatest battle that we face every second of every day, what is it we're going to enjoy right now, the Lord or something else? I mean, wars are not won by surrendering, are they? They're won by enforcing our will on another, not admitting our powerlessness. But our soul needs this kind of submission and surrender every day. And you know how you can spot it? Submission and surrender. When you're not the smartest in the room, does it tick you off? Are you able to thank the Lord for that person? You able to get others? You ever practice the discipline of today, I'm going to let everybody else get the last word? That's submission and surrender. Every moment, we cannot submit to the Lord enough, and that often happens by submitting our will when appropriate to another person. We should ask ourselves, not how can I get them to respect me, 
or think better of me, think I'm smarter, think I'm more athletic, think I'm, I'm more competent at my job, that I'm funnier. But how can I make them look good? How can I encourage them? When someone admits that they're an alcoholic at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, an AA meeting, they're admitting that they lack the willpower to stop drinking. The first step in AA set up by its original founder was to at first admit that there is an order to the universe that God has designed for you. It was founded by Christians. Ultimately, you must begin the process of surrender, admitting that you are not the master of your fate, you are not the hero of your story, and you're not in charge. I try to do this daily. I fail sometimes, but Lord, you are the hero of my story. You are the master of my fate, and you're in charge. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 44, I will always obey your law forever and ever. And it's interesting what the next verse says. Does anybody know? Top of their head. It's okay. I didn't either until I read this here recently. In verse 45, I will walk about in freedom for I have sought out your precepts. Freedom comes by obeying God's law. When we embrace God's overall design for his creation and our place in it, true freedom does not come from the world but from the one who made it. That's why in the Bible you see this strong connection between God's law and real freedom, and it will always grate on our last nerve. Our flesh, that is our natural selves, will say, but I don't want to. I don't want to. But the more we say no to flesh and yes to Jesus, the more we see that he is so much sweeter. He is so much greater. And this piece of crap that I left behind was just that. It was nothing. It was stealing my life. And it would have choked me out had I not taken Jesus' hand to rescue me. He relentlessly pursues us because he wants our hearts. He wants us to enjoy him above all else. One of the best examples we see is in James chapter 1, verse 25. It says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. You know, my head's filled with baseball analogies, so I got to give one right now. I don't know how else to do it. I'm sorry. But I tell my guys, you win baseball by winning one pitch at a time. You do not win by trying to win the whole game. You win one pitch at a time. So when the pitcher releases the ball, you're down and ready. You're thinking about what the situation is. If you lose enough pitches, even if the ball's not hit to you, by the time it is hit to you, you have already lost. So you play with intensity every single pitch. We go through drill after drill. That's incredibly simple. And all it is is just middle discipline, middle discipline, middle discipline. Develop that focus. And they'll hear me say often, more intensity, more intensity, more intensity. It's about focus. And that's why in James it says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law. When you practice an intensity in something, you don't do it for a moment. When you've got an intense desire for something, it obsesses all 80,000 whatever seconds of your day. I want to honor God in this moment. I want him to redeem this moment in my life. So we've said that true freedom looks like obeying the Lord from the heart. And this happens as our habits change. 2 Timothy says that the Holy Spirit has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. It doesn't come from us, it comes from him. In the early centuries of the church, people began to speak of this cure of the soul. Now, when we speak of cure, we typically are are referring to uh, healing from physical disease like cancer or the common cold. But I'm complicit in the sickness of my soul in ways that I'm not complicit 
uh, or I should say I'm complicit in the sickness of my body in ways that I'm not with my soul. I don't say yes to strep throat thinking that it'll make my time with my family more enjoyable, but I will certainly say yes to those things which wage war against my soul, mistaking the lie for a truth. Filling my, filling my bottomless desire for pleasure with things that bring death and actually kill my real desire for good things. I say yes to greed and lust, knowing that it's going to make me sick. The cure for the soul is not for more willpower, but for new sets of habits given to us by the Holy Spirit. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Disciplines, says that Thomas Aquinas devoted over 70 pages in his writing to the cultivation of holy habits. Holy habits give us access to the power of Christ that willpower will fail to accomplish. If we just want to, we can want to all we want. It's not going to happen. Daily disciplines. That is not true enjoyment of the Lord comes in two forms. It comes in uh, what we'll call forms. That is daily practices uh, that, that we just, we do. They're part of our lives. We do them. And enjoyment of the Lord also comes through spontaneity. We need, mo- we need both. Those who say, well, I just spontaneously pray. You ask that person, who are you praying for regularly? What answers have you seen to prayer? The disciplined prayer life is how it works. We naturally will want to all day long. We'll want to pray. We'll want to get in the word. We'll want to love others. It's got to be a discipline. And we also have to have spontaneity. It goes both ways. This is what it looked like for the early Christ followers. They confessed their sins to each other. They prayed. They studied the word together. They replaced sinful habits with holy habits with the changed heart they had been given by God. And I'll go ahead and invite up the worship team here. But can you think right now of a sinful habit that is corrupting your relationship with the Lord, that is stealing your enjoyment? Can you think of that? Because here's, here's the problem. If we let habitual sin stay in our life, but yet we also try to have an intimate walk with the Lord, it'll never work. In all these expressions of worship, whether it's here to get the communal worship in home group or here, or uh, private worship in reading the word and praying, it'll just feel dry and religious. It will because we're not enjoying the Lord. We're enjoying something else, but we're trying to make ourselves feel good by you know, practicing some type of spiritual discipline in our lives that gives us a sort of moral compass and, and sense of comfort. So I want to ask you tonight, can we take a step of faith by looking at a destructive habit, sinful habit in our lives and asking the Lord by his grace to change it, to replace it with a holy habit? Can we pray for that grace tonight? And it could be the way that you treat other people It could be something that you do in the privacy of your own room. It could be a bitterness that's grown up in your heart. And you say, you know what? I'm going to get into some accountability. That is, I'm going to get other Christians to ask me about it and pray for me. And and I'm going to start getting in the Word every day for 10 minutes. First thing. Or I'm going to memorize a verse once a week and just go over it while I'm in the car. Whatever it is, can you take a moment right now and pray for that thing for a destructive, sinful habit to be replaced by a holy habit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we thank you that you have given us a spirit of power and of love and self-discipline. 
We have it, Lord, and we just confess that oftentimes it gets covered up with the mud and the mire of sin and uh, sinful habits that separate us from you. Lord, but we thank you that you can lift all of those off of us. We can't do that on our own, but we thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And you're just looking for us to turn from those things that really bring death. So would you give us the grace to do that right now? Lord, and tomorrow to sing a new song to you, Lord, with a habit that reflects your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.